So this morning, we are actually not really picking up where we left off last week, but we're going to be a little bit of a precursor to where we were last week. So if you were here last week, we talked about China. We talked about the picture of gospel community that we saw while living in China. And I used Acts 2 as sort of an expression of what that community looked like. Now, if you remember in history, Acts 2 is really sort of the first movement of the church that we see. End of chapter 2, Acts 42 through 47, is this picture of the church that is now doing life together. And it talks about how they shared uh, meals together, and they broke bread in each other's homes, and they they gave, and they sold possessions, and they lived as a community. What we're going to look at this morning is how that came to be. So how this response of gospel community came because of what God did in the life of the church. And we're going to look at the birth of the church and sort of the explosion of the church kind of thrust into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as most of you may, well, may or may not know, today's really an important day in church history, church big C. Because today is a day that we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Now most of us aren't, unless we have a liturgical background or like a high church background, our sort of non-church backgrounds leave a lot of important church days off our calendar. We seem to sort of forget our history uh, the more contemporary we get. But part of the great thing about remembering that we're attached to other believers from across periods of time and, and that the church spans this sort of uh, movement that is modernism is the idea that there are holidays and things and, and place that are very rich and very truth and today, uh, full of truth. And today is Pentecost Sunday. It's a day that we celebrate the birth of the church. All right. Now, Historically, this day traces its roots way back into the Old Testament and was originally the festival of first fruits. It was the day, um, the kind of period when Israel came together, when God kind of uh, gave them favor and the harvest grew, they would have a great celebration and they would give God, they would honor God with the giving of of the first, the 10% of their first fruits of the harvest. And that was a celebration. But by the time we get to the chapter 2 in Acts, The Israelites have sort of taken that idea of the first fruit and they've turned it into a celebration of God giving the law, the law, uh, the the Torah. God giving the law to uh, Moses on Mount Sinai and it was a big celebration. And Pentecost actually is a Greek word that kind of means, comes from the Greek word means 50th or 50. And it was originally um, the festival of weeks because it is 50 days after Passover, right? One day, 50 days after the celebration of of, uh, Passover. And it was called the Festival of Weeks because it's a week of weeks after Passover. So seven weeks, right? Seven of those, 49 days plus one, 50th, and you end up on this day which they called Pentecost, which is 50th. And it was a celebration of the Festival of of Weeks, of that God had given the law and the first fruits all rolled into one. And it was one of three pilgrimage holidays in the life of Israel. So they had three. They had Passover, which we've talked about before. Remember, that's when Jesus and the disciples came and they prepared. And once a year, uh, the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice for all the sins of the community. And people would bring their sacrifices to the Lord. And it was a day that they remembered that God had spared them in Egypt, right? That he had passed over, his spirit had passed over those houses. If you remember your Old Testament history, that they had marked with the blood of the Lamb. And Israel was celebrating God's deliverance from Israel. God's spirit had protected them. 
That was the first of these sort of pilgrimage holidays where people would go to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship. The second of those was Pentecost, or the Festival of Weeks. And they would go to Jerusalem and they would celebrate God giving the law and first fruits and all those kind of things. The third of the pilgrimage holidays was the Festival of Tabernacles, or of Booths, which is a result of the book of Esther. And there's some, some tie in there of God's presence, and it's really cool, and we can talk about it another time. But those are three of the, really the three pilgrimage holidays. And pilgrimage holidays were huge in the life of Israel because the Israelites were scattered, as I'll tell you in a minute. And so they came together to worship on really important days. And so Passover was the first, 50 days later it was Pentecost. Now Pentecost takes on a different meaning for those of us that are followers of Christ today because Pentecost is the day that the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, is given to the church. It is actually the birthday or the birthplace of the church. It is a day that the church is thrust into existence by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, all 120 of them receive the Holy Spirit, and then God adds to their number three thousand people in one day and so what we celebrate on this day is that we are a re kind of a response we are connected directly to the birth of this church the giving of the holy spirit and so we're going to be kind of exploring those events but really we're going to get to the end of this where god does something miraculous and the church is sort of thrust into existence so i want to give you all that background because sometimes in our sort of ongoing church life we forget the connection that we have to the New Testament church, to the move of God throughout history, that churches for 2,000 years have celebrated this day as the birthplace of the church, that God thrust it in a supernatural way, not by the hands of man, into existence. And that is what we celebrate today, 50 days after Passover. So it's Pentecost Sunday. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip to Acts chapter 2. Um, and I'm gonna, I want to get to the end of it. Uh, I want to get to 36, verse 36. So I'm going to paraphrase a few things to get you caught up to speed, but before we do that, let's take a moment and let's just, uh, let's pray together. God, I thank you that, um, I thank you that you're a God that's bigger than all that we know, and that God, that our Christian lives are, are meant to be lived in community, that they're meant to be lived connected, that they're meant to be uh, lived in conjunction with other believers. And that, Lord, as, as much as sometimes we don't feel like it, we are connected to other believers, not only in this city, but all over the world. God, we're connected to believers uh, that went before us. And that, God, as we'll see today, we are very much a part of this history as the Holy Spirit uh, bursts onto the scene on some level, Father. We have received that same promise. And we are heirs to that promise, as we're going to see Peter tell us. And, God, I pray that as we open your word, you would teach us, that you would reveal in what is a very kind of common understanding of the gospel, you would reveal a very powerful truth to us this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to, to teach you something, to remove some calluses from your heart, if you will, and open you to his move. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, just even if you don't know their name, just whisper that God would do something in somebody else's life. Be in the habit of praying for other people. your word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we don't take that lightly. So teach us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So Acts chapter 2 is this picture of the birth of the church. It's really God's move, God's message. The Holy Spirit shows up in this remarkably amazing way. And the church is, is really in a supernatural way, sort of, as I've said, thrust into existence. It is just happens. And, and we're gonna, I'm going to paraphrase some of these things because I want to get to verse 36. Because I want to focus on the gospel message that's central to this sort of explosion of the church. But, so what's happened is, is that Jesus was, was raised from the dead. And he had resurrection appearances for 40 days. And for 40 days, Jesus appeared to people. And then the book of Luke records the ascension of Jesus Christ. Right at the end of the book of Luke, the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the beginning of Acts chapter 1, we see this picture of Jesus ascending into heaven. Now, Luke and Acts were actually one big letter. Uh, That's how they were originally written. Luke wrote them. They were one big letter. Later on, they were divided up and sort of separated. But it's one continuous letter. And the book of Luke, if you read the very last verse, picks up in the first verse of the book of Acts. And we see the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus literally being taken up to heaven in front of their very eyes 40 days after the resurrection. Ten days go by, and Jesus had told the believers, and there's about 120 of them now, to wait on the promised Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what they were doing. For ten days, they gathered together in someone's home or in some big home there, and they just waited. And then on Pentecost, this day, some ten days after the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit shows up in a really amazing, powerful way. And you may remember the story. It says the believers were gathered together, the very, verse 2, when suddenly, right, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that rested over each of their heads. And they began to speak in other tongues, other languages, um, in this sort of amazing way. Now, all of these people were gathered in Jerusalem. Remember, they are gathered there for this big festival of weeks. They're there for Pentecost to celebrate. And as these believers, with this sort of tongues of fire resting on their heads in a supernatural proclamation, began to speak in other languages, audible languages, to the people that were gathered. And it says the people were amazed and they came running in bewilderment because these, Gal- these Ga- uh, Galileans, these, these people, were now speaking the wonders of God in the native languages of these people. Now, you've got to remember, there were two big events that happened in history that spread the Jews. The first one was the fall of the northern kingdom. The Assyrian Empire came and, and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, and they carried off uh, the Jewish people into all the different kind of surrounding territories of the Assyrians. The southern kingdom fell some hundreds of years later, and the Babylonians carried off the southern kingdom all over the place. This sort of dispersion of the Jewish people is referred to in scholarship as a diaspora. It's the spreading of Jewish people. And what happened was is that when a, a land conquered another group, they would take key people, leaders, artists, scientists, and they would make them leave the, the, the uh, capital. They wouldn't kill them. They would take them and spread them all out because then the people would be decentralized. And if they were decentralized, they couldn't gather and regain power again. And so what would happen is they would disperse them. And that, those two great moments dispersed the Jewish people all over the countryside. So the Jewish people went from being a nation that was located into a nation that was dispersed. Later, Ezra and Nehemiah would try and rebuild the temple walls, but the dispersion was done. I mean, people and Jewish people were all over the place, and they would intermarry, and they would learn new languages. But they were still clinging a lot to their Jewish roots and Jewish heritage. So these pilgrimage holidays were important because it's when all the people would gather. Now, most of the people still spoke Hebrew because the the law was written in Hebrew, and they, they were probably worshiping in Hebrew, but they spoke native dialects, and there were 
hundreds of them. And they spoke native dialects from the places they'd been taken to. So here they are gathered. I mean, imagine being four people from your homeland, right? Your family, your son, your daughter, or maybe another couple. And you walked three and a half weeks, right, to come celebrate in Jerusalem the festival of, of, of weeks, Pentecost. And you walked and you walked and you walked and you got there. And you get there and you're, you're going through all the preparations and you begin to hear the amazement, the wonders of God being proclaimed in your own language. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but for any of you that have spent time in other countries where you've been there for a long time and all they speak is another language, right? They only speak Chinese, they only speak Ugandan or, the, or Lugandan or they only speak whatever. And then all of a sudden you go somewhere and you hear English. It's like, wait a minute. I, I understood that. Like, I heard that. Like, it's my native. Like, what are you speaking English for? I thought I was the only one. That, that's kind of what's happening. You're gathered in these people, and you've got a rare dialect that's your home language from wherever you're from, and you hear these wonders of God being proclaimed in that language. Well, the people begin to freak out because they are hearing these wonders of God being proclaimed in all these languages. And if you read that list in verse 8, I mean, it goes through about 12 different areas and people groups, and they're all being proclaimed um, in these native tongues, right? And the peoples uh, were blown away. It says that we, we were here the wonders of God being declared in our own languages. And they were amazed and perplexed and they asked one another, what does this mean? Some people thought they were drunk. Peter stands up on this kind of, uh, kind of uh, it's probably most likely a, a big column, series of columns about the temple there. And he begins to make a speech. And I want to get to the end of Peter's speech because the end of Peter's speech uh, is really the the kind of the gospel message that's central to the birth of the church. And he makes a speech, and he says, hey, listen, here's what I want you to understand. This, these things are happening are supernatural, right? They're not the result of, of people that because they're drunk or because they're doing whatever. What's happening is God is doing something that's unexplainable. And he stands up, and he gives this great speech, and he starts with the book of Joel, the prophecy of Joel, and he explains to people what has happened with Jesus Christ. And they told this group of people about Jesus. And they began to explain this Jesus whom they crucified. And a lot of those people would have been there 50 days earlier. They would have been part of that crowd that cried for Barabbas. They would have pilgrimed in for this holiday. And he's saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, he was, he was God's son. And he went through this whole thing. But he gets to this section that I want to read you in verse 36, which I believe to be this sort of profound pronouncement of the gospel. And I've been kind of consumed with the idea of the gospel lately because as we prepared to go to China, I know I keep picking that up like I'm going to read it, but as we prepared to go to China, I was consumed with the idea of the gospel because one of the things that we were asked to do was come teach the gospel, which sounds really easy, doesn't it? I mean, we all know what the gospel is, the good news. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I was dead to sin. God made me alive to Christ. Like, this is the gospel. And I, and I thought I could have a handle on how to articulate it well. And I think most of us do. We think we can articulate it well. But when someone says, here's what I want you to do, I need you to come tell people about Jesus, whom they'd never heard, right? Maybe haven't ever heard about Jesus, never heard about the Old Testament, never heard about God, never heard about any of these things. Or maybe they're brand new, or that's kind of a new revelation to them. I want you to tell those people the good news. But remember, they don't speak your language. And the person that's going to translate for you doesn't really speak your language either. That's like their third language. Because most of our Chinese friends, they spoke Mandarin or Cantonese and then finally English and sometimes other languages. And, and their English was not going to be able to capture what your words really were. So I began to think about how simple do you get? How complex do you get? What words do you use and not words? What words translate and what words don't translate? And I was sort of consumed with this idea of how do I articulate truth, which I've heard really for 
all of my life and have attempted to follow this Jesus for 20 years of my life. How do I articulate that truth in another language to someone that's never heard? And I was consumed with this idea of the gospel, how to break it down. And I think Peter's end of his speech is a really powerful picture of the gospel message. It's actually the Holy Spirit's message that in a supernatural way was instrumental in the birth of the church. That God shows up in this amazing way doing only things that God can do. And he uses this message, these truths, to capture the heart of over 3,000 people in one single afternoon. Listen to Peter's words. Therefore, verse 36, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number on that day. So I started looking closely at this as I was thinking about church and Pentecost and, and the gospel message, all these kind of things that are running through my head. And I was struck by what Peter says. 36, he says, therefore. So in other words, in light of, or all those things that I've just told you boil down to this. Let all of Israel, all, and Israel's not, remember, it's not a location so much as a people group. Let all of Israel, right, who is taking this huge, this huge crowd of people, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Christ. There's three things right there I want you to see before I move on. The first is that in that sentence, God has made this Jesus. Now, it's a mystery to think that what Paul is, uh, or what, excuse me, what Peter is saying is that God made Jesus, right? He's not talking about Jesus being a creation of God. For we know that Jesus was not created. Jesus always was. The best example of this is in John chapter 1, where John records, says this, the word, the logos, which is Jesus, was, in the, in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning, Jesus was. So we reference and we know that Jesus is not the creation of God. We don't worship three separate gods. Those of you who have been coming to our core theology class have kind of heard me talk about the Trinity. We don't worship three separate gods. We worship one God and three persons. And so it's not a reference to created, but it's a reference to authority. So what, what Peter's saying to this gathered group of Jewish people is, listen, God has given authority. The God that you came here to worship, the God that you gathered here, the God of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God that draws us here for this incredible celebration has given all power and authority to this Jesus who you killed. Now, a lot of these people, as I said, would have been there at the Passover. They would have come with their families. They would have very much known what took place on those days as they cried for Barabbas, the murderer, and as they watched Jesus be beaten and crucified. And Peter stands up and he says, the God that you've gathered here to worship has given authority to this Jesus for two things. And he, and he lifts up these two things that are really important. He says, first, he has made him Lord. He's made him Lord. And I could probably spend multiple Sunday mornings talking about the doctrine of the Lordship of Christ. But it's incredibly important. Because what Paul is saying, I keep saying Paul, I've been Philippians for so long. What Peter is saying is that he's saying there is something to the truth that Jesus 
is Lord. Now, we don't have to look very far. We can actually look to our Philippians study to understand this sort of picture. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where, where we read Paul saying, look, God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Meaning, Jesus is over all. He is in charge of all. He is Lord of all things. And when we take that personally, when we understand the personal nature of the gospel message, it means that Jesus is Lord over my life. Not only is he Lord over all things, but he is Lord over me, which means all of my decisions, the way that I see the world, the way that I interact with people, Lord over my marriage, my kids, my family, everything. Now, most of us in this room this will be the one central point that we fight God with for all of our lives. We'll be wrestling with God over who is actually Lord of our lives. Am I? Am I in control of me? Do I actually want to give all things over to the Lord? See, the key central part of the gospel message is realizing that God calls us to surrender to his lordship. Now, whether we like it or not, does not... The reality is that Jesus is Lord. Whether we want to admit it or not, none of that changes. But we will fight God for control over the things of our life. And the key thing we will fight the Lord over is his lordship over our lives. Because most of us are very much okay with God being Lord over everything else. Lord over creation, Lord over all the stuff, the laws of science, whatever it is. But when it comes down to letting go of the things that I want to hold on tightly to, I will fight God on those things. Because Lord, you can be Lord over everything except this. Because this is what I'm petrified of. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what makes me feel comfortable. This is the one thing that I feel like I can control. The central message within the gospel, kind of core of the gospel, is understanding that Jesus is Lord, which makes him Lord over my life, which is the central piece of me that fights God. I want to be Lord over me. Or I want God to be Lord over me, but only in the areas I'm really comfortable with. The rest of them, well, those are mine, and I'll hide them in my heart. Peter stands up in this crowd and he says, it's God who made Jesus. Not, this is not my message. I'm not making this stuff up. It doesn't come from us. But God made Jesus Lord, period. He made him Lord, which means he's Lord over you. And these Jewish people would have understood the term of this idea of Lord because it would have been the same sentence as God, the same understanding of God. In other words, he gets it all. Jesus gets all of you. First key to the gospel message is surrendering to the lordship of Christ. Lordship over every part of your life. But Peter goes on, he says, not only has God given authority to Jesus as Lord, but he's given authority to Jesus as Christ. Now, Christ, and without a show of hands, okay, how many of you in the back of your mind without making it embarrassing you have to admit it, actually thought that Christ was Jesus' last name? As if his middle name was like Marvin or whatever. Like, Jesus Christ, that was his last name. Like, it was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and James and whatever. And Jesus was Jesus Christ. And when he, you know, that was, it's not, not the case. It's actually a title, right? I mean, I know we kind of know this, but it's a title. Oftentimes we get associated together, but it's not Jesus, Marvin, Christ. It's, it's a title. And it's, it's the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. It's actually the exact kind of synonym for the Hebrew word that means Messiah, which also means anointed one. So Messiah and Christos, or Christ, are the same kind of understanding of anointed one of God. And all through scripture, the idea of the anointed one of God has to do with being king. Happens all through the Old Testament. 
The anointed one of God is someone that God chooses as his chosen instrument, okay? So this is how these things would work. Instead of the coronation ceremony for a king where the people give him a crown, the priests would go and they would anoint the new king's head with oil. They would literally say, you are God's chosen one. This is what Samuel does when David becomes king. He goes and anoints him, saying, God has chosen you as king. David himself even refers to Saul as God's anointed one. God, when God chose Saul as the first king. So all through scripture, we get this picture of anointed one, or um, the idea of a Messiah, or the idea of Christos being associated with the anointed one of God the king. Now, the Old Testament paints a picture that there is a king, a Messiah, that will come. It alludes to the coming of the messianic Christ. That there will be one, anointed one of God, that will come and will rule the world. Right? That's the anticipation of the anointed one of God, the Messiah. Now, if you read your New Testament carefully, you see this idea of kingship traced throughout it, kingship of Christ. So even from the very first part of Jesus' birth, when the Magi come from the east to worship the newborn king, right? They come to worship the new king, they bring gifts, right? We see this sort of traced throughout. My favorite is in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus steps into his earthly ministry, and he goes back to, to Nazareth, and he goes to the temple, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah on the day when they all read the scrolls, and he reads it. And the scroll of Isaiah 61 basically says this. It says, Jesus says, I have come, the anointed one of God, to preach the good news to the poor, to set the captives free. And he kind of goes through this piece. And then Jesus rolls up the scroll, and he hands it back, and he goes, and he sits down, All these eyes are fixed on him. And then Jesus says this, Today, that prophecy has been fulfilled. Basically saying, I am the anointed one. The word Messiah there, the Messiah is the Hebrew word. I am the anointed one. Right? We see that towards the end of his life as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Right? The coming king. We see Pilate as he's interviewing Jesus saying, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Yes, it's as you say. Why is this important? Well, it's important because all of Israel gathered there was looking for what? They were looking for a political king. We talked about this all the time. We talked about Easter a lot. They were wanting a political king that would come and reestablish their nation. To come in and overthrow the Romans and say, look how great we are. Right? And when Jesus didn't meet those expectations, they killed him. That's what happened in Easter. But Peter says, look, the authority of God has not only made Jesus Lord of all, But he is the anointed one. And not only is he the anointed king, but he's the anointed king come to redeem you. And that you killing him doesn't do away with that. Jesus came to redeem humanity from sin, to break those bondages, not to set one people group free, but to free all of humanity from the bondage of sin. This is the gospel message. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That not only is he the anointed one, but he is Lord over all. And that the fact that those gathered Jewish people had crucified him didn't do away with that truth. But God conquered that by raising him from the dead. So this powerful truth, right? Listen to how the Jewish people respond. Now these are Jewish converts and Jewish people. So verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So they heard this message. God has given the authority. God has made this Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. And it said that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Brothers, what do we do? I love this picture because I think that when we hear the gospel message, 
it demands a response from us. But we have become so callous to this in our Christian culture. We have become so callous to the message that we very easily are probably sitting here saying, how close is Treb to being done? Like we have so heard this thing so many times that it doesn't move us. It doesn't stir us. It doesn't call us to anything. But this response that these, these, these Jewish people are saying is a combination of both conviction and belief. That when I run into the belief that this is true and I'm convicted by my own life, my only course of action is to say, God, what has to change? What has to happen? Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's stilling my heart. Maybe it's a complete turnaround. But something is moving in me and I can't remain the same. But we're callous to it. We hear it day in and day out. We read it day in and day out. And it doesn't cause a response in us. When we went to Africa, um, one of the things that we'd do is we would walk around door to door to all these basically grass huts. And we'd go with a translator and we'd walk into this little village and we'd go up to somebody and we'd say, do you have a few minutes that I could tell you a story? And they, they would always say, absolutely. And they'd gather everybody around. They'd sit in these little chairs or on these little buckets or on stumps. And we'd sit there and we'd tell them the story. We'd start off with this, telling them about the God's love story for them. And we'd tell this incredible story of, of God's love. And it was basically a biblical walkthrough of how much God loved them. And through his son, Jesus had given him life. And we'd do this whole thing. And it took about 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, you go start to articulate this and it's translated and you get to this, into the story. Every single one of us had this response at some point in time or another. We'd go, is this something, this message, something that you, you feel like you want to believe or, or, you wanna, or you understand? And, and every one of us had this response at some point in time. The male of the family, usually the father, would say, he'd say, brother, we're already believers. We've already given our life to Christ. And then in response, I would always say, then why did you let me spend 20 minutes telling you this, right? And he would always say, we just wanted to hear the story again. Because they, didn't have, they don't have access to the Bible, right? They don't own one. No one owns one. There's a few at the church, but that's it. They were so enthusiastic about just hearing the story again that they would gather around just to listen to it. We have become so callous to the gospel that it doesn't even affect our hearts. We can hear it and go, eh, that's true. But when conviction and belief, right, when the belief that Jesus is Lord, right, the conviction that he is the Christ and that I am broken and in desperate need of him. When those things come together, the question that Jewish people lob out is the one that should come out of our lips. God, what do I do? Not because I'm driven to action, but because when I come face to face with this, something in me has to give every single time. I want to be at that place where I say, God, what now? What do you require of me? What? Maybe it's just stillness. Maybe it's brokenness, maybe it's worship, maybe it's whatever. But God, I'm so tired of being callous to this. Break my heart with your truth. So this is what Peter says when they say, brother, what do we do? And I'll wrap it all up with this and I'll do it quickly. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So he says, listen, repent. Repent. You know the idea of repent is the idea of turning away from. Most of us are really good at confession. God, I am so sorry. I blew it. I did this wrong. Should have done that. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And then we stand right where we are, continue to live the exact same way we've always lived. Just asking God to forgive us so that I can keep living the way I live and without feeling guilty about it. Repentance is the idea of saying, God, I'm broken. And I don't want to live that way anymore. And I want to actually physically turn and go the other direction. 
Repenting is the repelling of that behavior, that action, that life. When I come face to face with the gospel, it shouldn't just be, God, I'm sorry. It should be, God, I want to be different. I want to not live that way. I am new, a new creation. So he says, repent. In other words, turn from your old way of life and be baptized, which was a public proclamation that Jesus is now my Savior. So two things. One, spiritually, take your life and turn from your old way. And two, make a public proclamation for the forgiveness of sins. It wasn't that baptism forgives us from our sins, but it's the expression that we've been forgiven, right? And then what happens? And then you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, from all who the Lord our God will call. So he says, this promise, you will receive the Holy Spirit, is not just for the select, like, super special, super Christians, apostles, but that the God of the universe will give you his spirit. And this promise is not only for you, but for your children and even those that are far away. What he's saying is, this promise is for you to carry, for you to tell your children, and for you to go back to your homelands, and for you to proclaim. And then when they hear this message and they respond, the gift of the Holy Spirit is to them, what he's saying is that this is for you. Oftentimes we think the great move of God is only for the super religious. But the Holy Spirit's promise is for each and every one of us when we repent and we receive Jesus Christ. Our lives are changed. And for all those whom God will call. God is at the center of this move. And then finally, for the sake of time, with many other words, he warned them, verse 41, for those who accepted his message were baptized, and 3,000 were added to their number. They went from 120 to 3,000 in one afternoon. They were baptized and moved, right? Imagine baptizing 3,000 folks in one day. What an incredible expression. Think about that movement. We went from sitting in this, in this house, the Holy Spirit blowing through like a violent wind, seeing tongues of fire, speaking in a language I don't understand or don't know, seeing people come to know Christ, watching Peter make this speech, hearing the proclamation of the gospel message is thrust by the Holy Spirit and seeing 3,000 people saved. Leaves me with a couple of questions. The first one is this. How do I respond to this message? I mean, really, when I hear the gospel truth that Jesus is both Lord and Christ over me, how does that change me every single time? Why do I continue to remain the same, right? What is my response to this? Just because I gave my life to Christ some 20 years ago doesn't mean this message shouldn't still move my soul. How do you respond to the gospel? Second question is, do you believe that God can still do this, can still do the miraculous, can still change your heart, change the hearts around you, can still add 3,000 to his number, can still do the miraculous, holy, amazing things that were done some 2,000 years ago that God through a kind of a violent wind can do something that's unexplainable. Are you passionless? Is your Christian life just an existence? What Peter's proclaiming to these folks is, listen, this changes everything. God's power and pronouncement, coupled with the truth of Jesus being Lord in Christ, changes everything. We've got to be at a place as a church where every time we hear this truth, we believe that God can still move in miraculous, unexplainable ways. And every single time our response should be, God, what do we do now? As we close our time in worship, I want you to ask your heart that question, God, what do we do? Why am I still the same when I hear these truths over and over again? How should this change me? Do I believe, truly believe that you can still do the miraculous? And can you do it in me? Let's pray.